0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello and thanks for joining us for a new criminal case. On June 11, 1988... At the St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey, John W. Yengo Sr., a 72-year-old man, was admitted to the St. Barnabas Medical Center. He was in excruciating pain, following an allergic reaction to an anticoagulant. He called a nurse on duty, Charles Cullen. Please, young man, he said pleadingly, give me something to relieve my pain. I can't take it anymore. Cullen moved quickly. He then gave the man another anticoagulant and a local anesthetic. The elderly man immediately calmed down, yet he died during the night. That's how it was working in a hospital, unfortunately. It wasn't possible to take care of everybody, and Charles knew this. However, John W. Yango's complaints and moans had finally subsided, which was a relief to the nurse. Charles Edmund Cullen, born on February 22, 1960, in West Orange, New Jersey, had a particularly tragic childhood and adolescence. However, taking care of others was his calling. He tried out several different career paths before finally finding his vocation. Charles was the youngest of eight children in an Irish family. His father, Edmund Cullen, was a bus driver and his mother, Florence Ward, was a homemaker. They were a very religious Catholic family and also quite poor. Edmund did whatever he could to adequately provide for his family. But when his youngest, Charles, was still a 7-month-old baby, his father died of a heart attack at the age of 56, leaving behind a lost widow in charge of eight children. He was the youngest of his siblings. He was intelligent, but shy and lonely. More importantly, his classmates at school found him strange. So strange that he didn't have any friends. For that matter, his classmates didn't care about the air of mystery that surrounded him. Far too often, he was the target of laughter and bullying. Charlie was eight or nine years old and lived alone with his mother. His brothers and sisters were older and had already left the house. I would have liked to have some fun with them, but my older brothers took drugs. Occasionally, they would come by the house. Mama was so nervous on those days, but eventually, they would leave again. His sisters also stopped by from time to time, pregnant with their boyfriends. Moreover, they treated him like a punching bag. Sometimes his sister's boyfriends would say things like, Hey, little brat, go get me a beer from the fridge. Or get lost and leave me alone with your sister. But Charlie only wanted to play around a bit. For once, there was someone with whom he could have had some fun. But no, he was constantly pushed around when his sister were there with their boyfriends or when his brothers dropped by the house. At the age of nine, the youngest Colin was so desperate that he tried to commit suicide by swallowing the contents of a chemistry set. That was the first time in his unhappy life that he tried to poison himself. Then when he was 17, Charles suddenly lost the person who was the closest to him in the whole world. On December 6, 1977, at the age of 60, his mother passed away at the hospital after a serious car accident. His sister, who was behind the wheel, died instantly. The teenager then asked for his mother's body to be returned, but the hospital where she had been transferred to had already cremated her. By 1978, a year had gone by since the terrible accident. It was also his last year of high school. Nevertheless, Cullen wanted to drop out anyway. He was devastated by his mother's death. He then enlisted in the U.S. Navy and then was assigned to the U.S. War De Wilson, a nuclear submarine. He was naturally talented and soon became a petty third-class officer. As luck would have it, he went to work for the ship's doctor whom he helped with vaccinations. He thought about his childhood his chemistry set, the eyedroppers, the substances, and the compounds that he made. That aspect of his work fascinated him, and he felt it deeply. Finally, one day, he couldn't hold back any longer and stole some surgical gear, latex gloves, and a hospital mask from the doctor's office. However, as the crew members descended from the submarine's cockpit and found the 20-year-old dressed this way, he was seated at the ship's missile control. Immediately, Petty Officer Michael L. Lennon shouted as he asked him, Petty officer, second-class Colin, what are you doing wearing this ridiculous outfit? You disrespect your crew and your uniform by behaving so unacceptably. Charles didn't say a word. Naturally, disciplinary action was taken against him for his inappropriate behavior, but the reasons why he decided to don this supposedly medical outfit were never revealed. In any case, it seemed to be a reminder of his desire to work in healthcare. Often humiliated and bullied for this crazy stunt, he tried to kill himself seven times during the middle of his mission. After his last attempt, he was hospitalized so that he could receive the required psychiatric treatment before being released by the Navy on a medical discharge in 1984. Upon his release, Charles Cullen pursued studies to become a nurse at the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing, as he had always wanted. For him, this was a dream that had become a reality. Unfortunately, another death in the family prevented him from enjoying his success. Just a few months after he earned his certification, his brother James died of an overdose. The weather was pleasant during that month of May in 1986. All the students in the class were getting ready for the graduation ceremonies. With great care, Charlie put on his gown. He was hot, but he was happy. Finally, he reached the Holy Grail and would be a nursing school graduate after his training that had lasted three years. One of his classmates, John, called out him. Hey, Charlie, did you see? My parents came. He announced happily, Mom, Dad, don't miss the photo. Charles turned around and saw John's parents waving to him. He began thinking. Although he was happy, he still felt a twinkle of sadness when he thought have neither his mother nor his father was there to congratulate him. In fact, there was no one there from his family at all. After he was awarded his diploma, Charles Cullen finally entered the workforce so that he could practice the profession that he loved. His excellent record and his outstanding qualifications earned him a well-deserved position in the burn treatment unit at the Saint Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, where patients required intensive care. To unwind after a long day at work, Cullen would often stop by the pub, which was not too far from downtown. He made friends with a charming young girl named Adrienne Tobe. She was working as a computer programmer. Their relationship quickly became intimate, and they decided to marry in 1987. Charles was 27 years old at the time, and life was finally smiling down upon him. He was happy, he was a nurse, and now he had a pretty young wife. One evening later that year, Charlie came home from work. It had been a very hard day. His wife was waiting for him impatiently. Charlie, I have something important to tell you. I'm listening what it is. He was dying to add that there's still... But Adrienne wasn't listening. She was ecstatic. I'm pregnant. That's wonderful, he exclaimed, overcome with joy. Finally, his life had begun with such hardship, was beginning to smile down on him. Young Shauna, the eldest of the two daughters, were born later that same year. But Charles Cullen was unstable. It didn't take long before his wife started to notice his strange behavior. He got upset easily and was unable to control himself. It was around this time that he began looking after a 72-year-old judge named John W. Yango Sr. He seemed to be in great pain. Colin gave him a fatal overdose of medication. There is also an HIV-positive patient. In his case, it was easy, an overdose of insulin. It provided some relief to be sure, but it also made him nervous and the atmosphere at home was highly charged. Adrienne suspected that her husband's bad mood was probably the result of stress at work. But what was she to make of someone who would mistreat the pets that belonged to the residents in the neighborhood, including their own dog, and then justified by saying that he couldn't tolerate the dog's barking and the cat's meowing? In addition, he often left the dogs tied up outside for hours in extreme harsh weather. One day, she even found her dog sealed up in a bowling bag. Neighbors had to call the SBCA, who immediately arrived to pick up the poor animal. In order to save their marriage, Adrienne frantically told herself that he was the father of her child and that she should be patient. Yet, she had the feelings that her husband was experiencing a serious change. It was clear that he was adrift, but she wasn't able to understand what was going on with him. The young man's dedication to nursing abruptly turned into an obsession for stealing medication and other substances that he used to try to end his miserable life. His relationship with his wife became increasingly strained. Colin now found his life unbearable, even though he had finally found some stability. He needed to release his anger. He thought that he had found a way, medication, both for himself and for others as a way to reduce the suffering, especially for those who were weaker than he was. Colin left his job at St. Barnabas in January 1992, When hospital management began to notice that his IV infusion bags were contaminated, an internal investigation that sought to find the person guilty of tampering with the intravenous bags determined that it was most likely Cullen who was responsible for the breach which led to the death of over a dozen patients. However, the police were not notified of this discovery. After the birth of their second daughter in summer 1992, Charles was becoming increasingly aggressive towards his wife. Unable to stand it any longer, she filed her first complaint of domestic violence against her husband. One evening when he returned home, he found his wife was waiting for him so that they could have a conversation. "'Charles Cullen, you've become completely unbearable, and I can't take it anymore. I've had it with your anger and your outbursts over the little things. And on top of that, you even attacked the dog. You'd better get your act together. And fast. Please, honey, don't go. I promise I'll try harder.' I've said the same thing over and over again, Charles. If it goes on like this, I'm leaving you. Listen, I won't smack you around anymore, I swear. He promised as he lay on the couch. I'll even stop drinking too if that's what you want. Can we go to a psychiatrist and I'll take medication for my depression? And I'll stop trying to commit suicide. Isn't that what you want? Oh, sure. Adrian shouted. That's what you always say, but nothing ever changes. In fact, it's just the opposite. It keeps getting worse. You need to think about your daughters. Let me stop you right there, he said as he sat down. I'm worried about us. Do you realize that I'm still managing to look after us? I left my old job less than six months ago and I've already found another. I haven't dropped a ball. I landed a job at the cardiology intensive care unit at Warren Hospital and I did it for you and the girls. That's pretty awesome, right? Come on now, take it easy. I promise you that everything is going to work out. I'm talking about your violent behavior, your nightly escapades, and your mysterious sight that frightens me sometimes. Not about your job, his wife replied. I'll do my best to be calm and less impulsive, he said softly. You have my word. Right now let me get some rest, darling, won't you? I'm starting my new job tomorrow. Wish me good luck. Yes, that's it. Mrs. Collins did everything she could to stay with Charlie, for better or worse. But she had to think about their little children, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And so, in 1993, Adrienne decided to file for a divorce. Consequently, Cullen was forced to move into a basement apartment on Schaefer Avenue in Phillipsburg, and to make matters worse, he lost his parental right over his girls. Each time his ex-wife filed a complaint against him, he tried to commit suicide. Ever since he moved, Charles felt lonely. He drank more and more and couldn't stop thinking about a very pretty nurse with whom he worked they both liked each other. Her name is Michelle Tomlinson, and he was aware that she already had a son. Colin believed that love was the only thing that could save him from the death wish that had haunted him day and night. One evening in March 1993, Charles invited his lovely colleague to dinner, and she accepted. Soon after, he asked her if she'd like to go out with him. She found his offer to be very inappropriate because they worked together. Upset, the young woman explained that she had a child to take care of and that she wasn't ready to start a relationship with anyone. Despite this definite refusal, Cullen wasn't about to give up. He was convinced that eventually she would come to love him as he loved her. He constantly left her messages at all hours of the day and begged her for a second chance whenever he saw her. She will love me no matter what it takes. One night after work, he followed her home from a distance. It was cold in Phillipsburg on the night in March 1993. The temperature was around 2 degrees Celsius. It was dark and Collins crunched upon his shoulders to try to keep warm. He looked at his watch. It was 11 p.m. The lights in Michelle's apartment had been turned off about 20 minutes ago. After glancing left and right to make sure that no one was around, he managed to break into her apartment without making a sound while she and her son were sleeping. He loved watching her as she slept. She looked like an angel at rest, but he slipped out silently. He absolutely did not want to wake her. Colin grew bolder and started to stalk Michelle Tomlinson at work, in town, and even at her home. She was frightened and filed a complaint against him. The police arrested him for harassment. Then he confessed to have willingly broken into his colleague's home. Sentenced to a year's probation, the brokenhearted nurse once more tried to kill himself. Given the state of his mental health, he was permitted to take three months' leave and was committed to two psychiatric institutions. Since the young man was becoming a threat to himself and to those around him, He desperately needed to be treated for the severe depression and the suicidal tendencies. Yet, at the end of his commitment, his condition had not improved. He then made another two suicide attempts in September 1993. The poisoner had long since developed a taste for killing. It was only his emotional outlet, and he enjoyed it. He then murdered a 90-year-old woman named Lucy McGrovo, in the same way he killed Mary Natoli, 85 years old, and Helen Dean, 91 by injecting them with a large dose of digoxin, This dangerous drug, which had become Cunn's criminal weapon of choice, was normally used to treat serious infections and heart failure. On the night when he entered Mrs. Natoli's room, he found her with her son Larry, who sometimes spent the night with his mother. Unshaken by his presence, the nurse confidently said to him, Please excuse me, sir, but I have to administer Mrs. Natoli with her usual care. Oh, of course, replied Larry. Let me know when you're done. Certainly, sir. The poor young man was unaware that he had just placed his mother in the hands of her executioner. When Mary's son noticed that the nurse who had just given her an injection was not assigned to her room, she was already dead. Larry Dean was convinced that his mother's death was not from natural causes as the hospital claimed. He then initiated a litigation through the county district attorney's office against the medical center in question. The local authorities launched an investigation and very soon the medical examiner corroborated Mr. Dean's story regarding the unprescribed drugs. He identified Cullen as the main suspect. The medical center, in an attempt to preserve its reputation, excluded the goxin from the list of substances found during Mary Natoli's autopsy. Charles Cullen and the other nurses were administered lie detector tests. Somehow, the serial killer nurse was able to pass the test with little effort. When Cullen was arrested, Warren Hospital was quick to let the media and investigators know that their employee was innocent and that there was no tangible evidence with which to charge him for Mrs. Dean's murder. Without any conclusive proof, he was free to continue performing his assigned duties in the same unit in the same medical center. This time, he had gotten away with it. He might have been unmasked, but luck was on his side. He resigned from his position at Warren Hospital in December 1993 and no longer wished to work as a nurse. Yet, Charlie was still required to pay child support, as ordered by the court. He gave serious thoughts to abandoning the murderous activities that he acted at at work, but the opportunities to relieve himself of his suffering were too good to pass up. A few months later, the nurse then began to resume his duties. Despite his past history of emotional instability, Cullen once again began working as a nurse in public hospitals throughout the U.S. His mental health problems provided absolutely no impediment to his finding work. In the 90s, there was often a shortage of healthcare workers and background checks for new employees were frequently skipped. At the time, there was no reporting mechanism in place to identify caregivers with mental health issues. Consequently, in 94, Charles Cullen easily landed a new position at the Hunterdon Medical Center in Flemington, and as before, in the intensive care and cardiology unit. Unwittingly, he once more found himself in the ideal environment for practicing his very secretive hobby on frail, weak patients those who were the most vulnerable. It was like as if if he were trapped with his own game. He tried his best to control himself, but his murderous impulses soon overcame him and he became increasingly prolific. Before he resigned his position at that medical institution, he killed five patients with degoxin overdoses between January and October 1996, before anyone was even aware. The following month, he left Hunter Don to join the University Hospital in Morristown, which was also in New Jersey, but he was dismissed in August 1997 for poor performance. Since he was unemployed, Colin was no longer able to pay child support. He hated himself when he looked in the mirror. Even his girlfriend had left him, but that wasn't the first time that he had been let down. It seemed like he would have to live the rest of his life facing rejection and obscurity. After pondering over it for hours, Colin decided to go to the Warren Hospital emergency ward in October 1997 in order to get treatment. Looking pale and completely exhausted, he leaned on the wall as he made his way down the corridor. Although he felt helpless to force himself to speak. Please help me, he said almost inaudibly. I'm very depressed. I stopped my treatment and I need to see a doctor. I need to get better for my daughters. They're very young and they need their father. Mr. Cullen, have you swallowed any harmful substance? Asked a nurse who recognized him. He shook his head and said no and then fainted. Immediately he was taken to the psychiatric unit where he was treated for a short term. After his brief hospital stay, Cullen surprisingly was able to get his life together. His request for authorization to work as a nurse in the state of Pennsylvania was granted and he was hired at the Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown. Within the nursing home, he was put in charge of the ventilators used in the respiratory resuscitation unit. He, therefore, had access to all the computer records of the center's patients and had plenty of time to browse them and select the next victim worthy of being set free. At night, after all the administrative staff, cleaning ladies, security guards, and the attending physicians, and most of the caregivers and assistants had left, there were very few people present at the retirement center. Sometimes, Colin strolled through the institution by himself. It was a quiet place and ideal for putting his thirst for extermination to work. He had just learned that he owed $67,000 in unpaid child support and he absolutely had to kill some more. Unfortunately for him, he was once spotted with a syringe in his hand entering a patient's room which he had not been assigned. This aroused suspicion. The next day the elderly lady was found with a broken arm but she had not been injected with any substance. Consequently, Charles was fired for administering medication without authorization, but as usual, the angel of death who carefully hid behind the mask of a dedicated caregiver was able to quickly find a new job. His actions led to the death of Matthew Mattern, a young man of 22, had been seriously burned in a car accident. All day long, he screamed in pain, and his condition only grew worse with each passing day. As for Charles, he believed that duty called. He had no choice but to set free a soul that was in pain. Although the hospital administration had serious suspicions about the nurse, he often quit his position before formal proceedings could begin. In fact, he resigned from Lehigh Valley after only working there for a month and was subsequently hired at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Unlike other medical facilities, where the nurse had worked, this one reported Colin to state health inspectors in September 2002 by informing them that the former employee had contributed to the deaths of at least five patients between January and June 2002. All of them died due to the fatal overdose of digoxin. A nurse became suspicious upon finding some empty vials in the trash can. This substance was not the kind that was typically sought after by drug users, and so the hospital initiated an internal investigation. As Cullen had been found out, he accepted the hospital's agreement and resigned in June 2002. However, seven nurses shared their concerns with the law enforcement. They were convinced that Collins was behind the death of patients from St. Luke's and they were upset that the hospital had allowed him to simply leave without any disciplinary action. But the authorities were not interested in the nurses' past and the case was close to the lack of evidence. Over time, the merciful nurse's compassion of those in agony evolved into compulsion against anyone who was hospitalized. He couldn't stand the moaning, the complaining, and screaming in agony that rang through the halls. His personal and professional life had become too stressful, and killing had become his only outlet. That is why he decided to poison the saline bags that had been stockpiled in order to deliberately murder some patients who were not terminally ill. In July 2003, Somerset Medical Center's database alert system began ringing the alarm bells. What was going on there? The manager wondered. He quickly looked at the screen, which displayed a list of names of patients, as well as the list of medications that had been prescribed. But there were also changes to their treatment schedules, and these new prescriptions were fatal. It was time to act in quickly. The IT manager immediately called management and informed them of the delicate situation. The internal investigation was conducted discreetly. It seemed that Collins had illicitly examined admission records that had not been assigned to him. Shortly thereafter, members of the caregiver staff noticed him in their patient's room. Following these discoveries, the center's management started checking the locked medicine cabinets in order to establish a record of any substances that were received or distributed. It was now apparent that the computerized prescriptions for the patients in question were completely inappropriate. Furthermore, the distribution of the drug was also incorrect. This proved that someone had issued medical treatments that had never been authorized and furthermore they were at fatal dosages. Yet from September 2002 until his arrest, the caregiver continued as staff at Somerset, the last hospital where he would ever work. He met someone with whom he got along well and they went out together. Nevertheless, Charles continued to have dark thoughts. As he became increasingly depressed, he began killing more frequently. Thirteen patients had died at the institution at Charles Cullen's hand. They were all murdered by lethal injection. He had also tried to kill three other patients, including Philip Greger, Jing Kong Han and Francis Agata. In addition to digoxin, he used high doses of insulin for his latest homicides. The crime which ultimately led to the serial killer's nurse downfall was the murder of Reverend Florian Gall. On June 27, 2003, in front of a witness, Cullen wheeled a digoxin in on a medical card, slipped it into the Reverend's room and injected him with a fatal overdose. Immediately, his blood tests were out of control and exhibited concentrated digoxin levels that were five times than normal. Widespread panic gripped the hospital as staff attempted to save the patient with an antidote, but they were unsuccessful. Subsequently, after a series of mysterious deaths due to an overdose of digoxin or insulin, the hospital placed a call to the Poison Information Education System. In turn, Dr. Marcus, the executive director of the Anti-Poison Center, contacted the director of Somerset Medical Center, William Corse. They had a lengthy conversation on the phone. For Dr. Marcus, lives were at stake. For William Coors, the hospital's reputation and image had been tarnished. In any case, the Director of Poison Information and Education System emphasized that at least four of the clinical deaths indicate that this is a work of someone on your staff. These patients had deliberately been killed when they normally should have been recovering. In an attempt to convince Dr. Marcus not to report these results to the health authorities, Coors told him, Of course, we'd like you to avoid plunging the whole institution into chaos and we take full responsibility for protecting our patients and ensuring that they don't suffer further harm. This is a serious incident and we think it's best to complete our investigation before rushing into any judgment and drawing hasty conclusions. Do you agree, doctor? With the help of one of his colleagues, another nurse named Amy Logren, Charles Cullen was finally captured. When officers from the Somerset County Police Department arrived at the Somerville restaurant on December 14, 2003, they found a the killer in the white coat seated at a table in the back, peacefully enjoying his meal. He did not appear to escape unwillingly, agreed to be taken away. After his arrest, prosecutors from New Jersey agreed to withdraw the death penalty in exchange for his complete cooperation in the investigation. As a result, the suspect freely confessed that he indeed was responsible for the voluntary homicide and attempted murder. The next day, officers Timothy Braun and Daniel Baldwin, who had been assigned to the case, were literally shocked by Charles Cullen's confessions. He claimed to have committed a series of murders in 10 hospitals in two different states. In that regard, the accused explained to the investigators that in the beginning, he killed a patient to put an end to their suffering. He justified his actions by saying, I gave the patients overdoses to prevent them from coding, meaning going into cardiac or respiratory arrest and then listed as a code blue emergency. I couldn't stand being a witness to hearing about any kind of intervention to save a patient's life. I did what I did to stop the hospital staff from dehumanizing them. During the investigation, Officer Braun and his partner tried to get as much information as possible from the suspect. Of course, he admitted to have committed more than 40 murders and attempted murders during 16 years of practice, but there was not enough evidence to charge him. Some of his crimes went back many years. Furthermore, many of the medical records had disappeared or were incomplete. The victim's remains had all decomposed and any kind of autopsy would now be impossible. Additionally, this serial killer's modus operandi was to inject his victims with widely used drugs that were naturally found in the human body. As a result, it was nearly impossible to determine which deaths were caused by Cullen and which were attributed to the hospital's typical mortality rate. At that point, Charles Cullen's confession was the only thing which an indictment could be based. The memory of his crimes is dark and hazy, he explained. I was also drinking like a fish, which makes things even hazier. I can't remember how I was working on the night shifts in the intensive care unit, and I was completely unsupervised and in complete darkness, punctuated only by the beeping sounds of the medical equipment. The investigation lasted months and months. Whenever Charles remembered some new details, he never hesitated to share it with the police. Until April 2004, the prisoner gradually confessed to 13 counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder by lethal injection. In a sense, Charles Cullen solved his own homicides by working closely with detectives Timothy Brown and Daniel Baldwin. The accused went through all the documents that might have included in his victim's medical records. In some cases, Cullen categorically denied having committed murder in a particular hospital. For example, he claimed that he never harmed anyone while working at Hunter Dunn Medical Center in Flemington. After thoroughly examining the files of that institution, it became clear that he was involved in several deaths contrary to what he claimed. He seemed convinced that he was merely doing his job and that he hadn't broken any rules. It was only after further questioning, and when he was confronted with proof that finally admitted his criminal acts, well, so much the better, he said with a slight smile, I'm glad that I will be able to help these poor souls make their journey into afterlife with some dignity. As for the detectives, they believed that it was quite like Charles Cullen had made his victims suffer, but the serial killer didn't seem to realize the fact. With respect to premeditations, it was impossible to determine whether or not the poisoner had planned to execute his victims or was acting on impulse. Colin claimed to have thought a lot about killing them as he watched them suffering day after day, but that the decision to commit murder was always made on impulse. The Angel of Death estimated that he had killed about 40 people. By that point, the detective had officially identified 29 victims, but no one knew how many lives he had been able to take. Even his lawyer, counselor Johnny Mask, had maintained several times that his client had still not finished identifying his victims and that it could take years. Some expert investigators strongly believed that the actual number of victims could be close to 400. However, this was only speculation. If it were true, then that would make Charles Cullen the most murderous serial killer in American history. The trial of Charles Edmund Cullen, one of the most prolific serial killers active in the medical community, began on March 10, 2006. His case had not only made the legal headlines in the United States, but all over the world. Out of all the bleak, highly publicized cases, Charles' harrowing trial had made a devastating impact and forever itched itself in the American and worldwide collective memory. In that Pennsylvania courtroom, the angel of death looked sleepy. His eyes were closed and his face was unexpressive. The 46-year-old former nurse sat calmly and motionless on the witness stand in Somerset County Courthouse. For several hours, about 20 of the victim's relatives stood before him, calling him a monster, a ruthless killer, and even a son of Satan. However, Charles Cullen showed no expression and merely stared at the floor. During his three years in custody, Cullen had never asked for forgiveness or even provided any excuses for his atrocious crimes. He never made a statement, nor did he ever say a word in public. It was the first time he had ever faced the families of his victims. In truth, there was only one reason why he agreed to appear in court. Charles wanted to donate a kidney to his ex-girlfriend's dying brother named Ernie Peckham. Otherwise, he did not want to testify in front of all these people. Consequently, the prosecutors reached a plea deal with the former nurse, which allowed him to have a kidney removed. Furthermore, the public prosecutor's office agreed not to seek the death penalty. In exchange, the accused would appear before a judge and plead guilty on all counts of murder and attempted murder. In addition, he would have to assist the police in identifying all the people that he had probably killed over the course of his medical career. Most of his victims' families considered disagreement to be a personal affront. It was quite humiliating and frustrating and very frustrating to witness this diabolical man still calling the shots even while he was behind bars. Once more, the so-called Angel of Death tried to control the fate of human life. But for these New Jersey families... This was the one and only chance to be face-to-face with the executioner of their late loved ones. That's why they were there and they were very angry. My only consolation is that knowing that you will die a thousand deaths in Satan's arms, yelled the daughter of a man that Cullen had injected a fatal dose of insulin. I hope with all of my heart that someone will make you their bitch in prison. You're a pathetic loser, said a woman whose mother-in-law had been killed by the nurse with oxygen. In prison, maybe Mr. Cullen will meet someone who he thinks is God just like he played God with so many other people. Who gave you the right to decide who lives and who dies? Asked Connie Keeler, the daughter of victim Paul Galgan holding back her tears. Then it was a distraught mother's turn to take the stand. She was a plump woman dressed in a lime-colored suit. She shook with anger and pain as she held on tight to the photo of a 38-year-old son, Christopher Hardgrove, whose life had been taken when this appalling murderer stopped his heart. She screamed at him at point blank. Charles, why don't you look at me? What's wrong? Aren't you getting any sleep? Unconcerned and terribly unmoved, Charles was well aware of what was going on all around him and was quite alert. From a distance, his shackled wrist, which looked as pale and peaceful as a sleeping dove, twitched slightly on his knees. Silently, he whispered prayers while handling an invisible strings of pearls as he said, Jesus Christ, Son of God, please pity on me. It was only when he heard someone shout, Go burn in hell, that the angel of death's inexpressive face finally twitched. In fact, his eyes were half open almost like a child trying to stay awake. This micro-expression only lasted a fraction of a second, but it revealed a hidden aspect of the serial killer's personality. Ironically, he was a religious man and was genuinely afraid of going to hell. He tried not to listen to the insults and continued to recite Psalms 25. See my enemies and how they are many and how fiercely they hate me. Save my soul and save me. Don't let me be ashamed. After the judge had heard all of the testimonies, the assistant prosecutor announced the state demands 13 life sentences. Once again, in the blink of an eye, Charles Cullen's neutral expression betrayed him. A wrinkle appeared briefly about the serial killer's eyebrow, and then his mouth twisted slightly as he uttered the word, 13. Immediately afterwards, his attitude went back to being flippant and narcissistic. As he addressed Cullen, Judge William Platt said the seven charges to which he offended had already pleaded guilty. Then, the judge asked if the accused had anything to add regarding the atrocities that he had committed against these weak and vulnerable innocent victims. Colin had no comments on the matter, but he emphasized that he was angry at the judge who, in his opinion, had made some upsetting allegations. And so, merely to irritate him, for about 30 minutes the prisoner kept repeating, ''Your Honour, you need to rescue yourself. If you continue to act this way, I will have you silenced,'' warned Judge Platt. But he went on that way, Until Judge Blatt made him put on a hood and adhesive tape. However, even with his mouth gagged, Collins still tried to speak. Even without words, his gesturing was still noticeable and everyone present in the courtroom knew that he was repeating the same phrase. How could it be possible to remain calm in the presence of such an egocentric, pathetic and arrogant criminal? After the jurors had finished deliberating, Judge Blatt condemned Charles Collins to seven additional life sentences. In fact, in a previous hearing, which had taken place on March 7 earlier that year in New Jersey, the accused had been sentenced to 11 other consecutive life prison terms without the possibility of parole before the year 2403. At that point, his criminal record included 18 life sentences. The sound of the judge's gravel and the scraping chairs marked the end of the hearing. It was a relief for Charles Cullen now that he had honored his part of the deal, but also for the audience present in the courtroom. Escorted by the officers wearing anti-riot gear and equipped with automatic weapons, he was shoved back to the back room. Then, he was directly transported to Trenton Prison in New Jersey, where he served a sentence as a very dangerous Category A inmate. After he was gone, he left behind a multitude of questions that will remain unanswered. Did he truly believe that he was releasing these poor souls from their suffering? Or perhaps, could have there been other motives that drove him to commit such odious crimes? Was he a merciful killer, a sadist, or a malevolent hero? These questions, among many others, required answers, but there was one in particular that intrigued the court. Indeed, the court wondered how the serial killer could have been active for such a long time without being discovered. Colin had been able to move around from one institution to another without anyone finding out that he was a habitual murderer. As a result, the scope of the case which the authorities had been slow to respond to now, raised the questions about the hospital's responsibility in these crimes. They had also been slow in reporting their findings to the health and legal authorities, despite the high mortality rates reported during the years that the zero killer had worked for them. This, it seems, was due to a misguided legal overprotectiveness on the part of American public health institutions. Moreover, none of these institutions were required to declare mortality rates even when they proved to be high. Also, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, like most states, did not require hospitals to report suspicious deaths, except in most egregious cases, and the penalties for failing to report such incidents were minor. The Trenton prison inmate didn't care much about the spotlight. He didn't like doing television interviews, didn't want to be visited by strangers, and never answered letters written to him. Furthermore, he only agreed to speak with one reporter, Charles Graber. In addition to these exclusive conversations he had in the prison with Charles Collins himself, Graeber also had access to hundreds of pages of police reports, interviews, audio recordings, and unreleased videos of Charles Cullen, the serial killer in the white coat. Based on these solid testimonies, he wrote a book that summarized the serial killer's story, entitled The Good Nurse, A True Story of Medicine, Madness, and Murderer. This book went beyond simply outlining Collins' murderous career. It also painted an incredibly realistic portrait of his murderous delusions. It also exposed the mysterious world of the American medical system and offered a clearer picture of the healthcare, hospitals, and people who work there from a totally different perspective. Currently screenwriter Christy wilson Cairns and Danish producer Tobias Lindholm are working on adapting Charles Graber's book for a film. Actor Eddie Redmayne had already been selected to play the role of Charles Cullen. The film, The Good Nurse, which will be produced by Netflix, will recount the true story of Cullen's pursuit and capture. Following the announcement of its production, the film has been highly anticipated by the public and promises to be a great success.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen